Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Grace Nerds podcast. My name is Eric, if you're new. Glad you could make it if you're here. Uh, and this is my friend, if you'd like to introduce yourself, Caleb. I'm Caleb. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's good to be good to be back. We missed last week. Yes, we did. Um, I've already forgotten what I had going on on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Oh, we had we had a movie night at our church. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah, right. yeah. All right. So you decided to take part in some uh, tomfoolery instead of yes. talking about the deep things of God. <laughs> well, I took place in some Frodo Baggonry. Oh, that's right. It was Fellowship of the Ring. Well, I guess that's yeah. I guess that's allowable. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to go ahead and hit the intro, and we will get rolling here. All right, so again, welcome back to the Grace Nerds Podcast. We have our usual set of uh, topics today. We've got a movie, more of a movie book series of the week again, uh, but we squeezed it in because technically there are movies, but we don't really care about that, but we'll <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, and then we got a little bit of related trivia. We're relating the trivia to the movie again instead of the theology, but for theology, we will be continuing our walk through the five points of Calvinism. Last time around, we talked about total depravity. And so today is the you in the tulip. We'll be talking about unconditional election. So that's where like there's a lot of there's a lot of jokes there that I mean, you could write some cheesy Valentine cards like mm -hmm. God put the you in tulip. That's right. Yeah. But where's the me? The you and I. The you. <laughs> there, and... there we go. The you and I. That's right. <laughs> Chosen to be together from before time began. Yes. It's like if I could rewrite the alphabet, I'd put you and I together. That's what they say. <laughs> All right. So uh, let me uh, check on our chat box here, which I have embedded in the program. So that should be Ooh. that should be nice. Yes. So we got a couple of YouTube viewers. One of them might be you. I don't know if you got it running, but. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do <laughs> okay we have one youtube viewer we'll see who shows up but hey if anybody wants to share it around share the link or whatever feel free that's always helpful but uh both me and caleb have been working on our internet connections so things should be pretty consistent tonight if all goes well hoping and praying because <laughs> it's been a runaround for me at least but um all right so Mr. Caleb, are we ready for our movie of the week? Yes. All right. All righty. So what will we be tackling this week? Oh, oh. I don't know that one. <laughs> Technical difficulties. Yes. Hey. Nice. So we are going to be covering not just this book, I don't think, but the entire series of Chronicles of Narnia, more or less. Right. But uh, that one's definitely the most well-known. Um, I'd say in terms of movies and in terms of the books. Yeah. Uh, now, when when did you first experience Chronicles of Narnia and in what format? Um, yeah, I think I think for me it... It was likely either the cartoon or the BBC Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
and then the books. Yes, I remember. I vaguely remember one clip from the cartoon, and it was yeah. uh, "Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe," and it was where Edmund was uh, lying about mm-hmm. whether or not he had experienced going into the wardrobe, and he's like, "Oh yes, we were, we were playing." You see, and, <laughs> you beast. No, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the voice acting on that was spectacular. Yeah, and but I can definitely remember mostly from the cartoon less so from the BBC original, that I wanted more than anything in the world to try Turkish Delight. Yeah, I've had it. It's, it I, is... I've, I've had it since. But... Yes. And I just thought of something. I'm going to risk a potential copyright strike for this. But oh my gosh, now that I thought of it, I have to do it on stream. <laughs> uh, all right, hold on here. Hold on here. You you keep talking about your <laughs> the, your, the progress it, yes. with which you experienced Narnia. I need to find a clip online because this All could right, be awesome if I can find this. We've got some technical work going on behind the scenes, yes. but yeah. So um, the cartoon I loved. I loved watching the cartoon as a kid. Um, I, I haven't seen it probably. I mean, man, twenty five years or so. Um, but I mean, not not that it was like anything amazing as far as like the animation we're not we're not talking like pixar quality or anything like that this is all hand animation from likely the 70s or 80s probably on a pretty cheap budget and uh but it was it was i liked it better than the bbc the bbc scared the mess out of me Mm -hmm. um i remember specifically like the wolf being extremely scary um the the fawn, Mr. Tumnus, was not all that uh, great either. Uh, <laughs> a little creepy. L- less scary, more creepy. And uh, yeah, so the whole thing was just a bit out there. But um, yeah, yeah. I think, I, I think out of the BBC series, I think the one that I ended up liking the most was either Voyage of the Dawn Treader or The Silver Chair. Yeah. Um, although I'll be honest, Silver Chair had some pretty creepy stuff too. I think yeah. I was just maybe a little bit older by the time I saw that. Um, but yeah, when they go underground in the Silver Chair, the 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 beings that are underground, um, which there's some amazing theological things there. Mm-hmm. I wish I could remember a little bit more of the Silver Chair, but it's come up before. Like in my small group, um, we've talked about it before. Like. They had never seen the sun, so they didn't really know, like, the benefits of the sun. And so they were all afraid of it and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. But Which one um, are you talking about now? Sil- silver Chair. Now, Silver Chair. I'm actually searching for a clip from the Silver Chair with the BBC. Nice, nice, nice. But continue, because this is going to be epic if I can find it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like, the the characters, I, I don't know. I know I've, ex- again, I don't remember what Someone might have heard called. that. But... <laughs> what? You might have heard the little sound effect from the thing there. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it, I mean, there's just amazing stuff there, but I, I, when Disney, I think it was Disney first said that they were going to make, um, their, their run at, um, the line, the witch in the wardrobe and kind of wondered, you know, how far would they go with the series? I was excited, but a little bit nervous at the same time, because I mean, I've stated my opinion on Hollywood, making films of this caliber they they usually cut out a good bit of the faith elements yeah um replace it with 
whatever. And uh, they did um, to an extent. I mean, there's there's still some good stuff there. But um, I, I would say I feel like Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was done better than the other ones. I, I found the, it! I found uh, it! <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> the third one, it completely oh. went off the rails, but um, it wasn't Disney that made that one either, though. Okay. So, speak. So yeah, so what have you covered? You've talked about the cartoon, and you've talked about the BBC, BBC. version, how that scared you. Yes. Uh, now, I might have missed it there uh, as I was deep in my search, but um, <laughs> did you mention the Disney ones? I did. I mentioned yeah. how the the first one I thought was mostly good. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I was okay with it. The yeah, they one... actually, I feel like whatever format I've seen Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in, it always really seems yeah. to uh, include all the essentials like they didn't change much of anything in the first one yeah second one kind of starts to shift and then the third one is like completely off the rails and but even then like i think fox made the third one so Uh it kind of shifted movie houses and all that stuff so all right so (laughs) this is something i saw now i saw i think like the chronicles of narnia like my my earliest memories are probably the bbc ones yeah and then like a, a clip or two of the cartoon um I'm not sure I have the audio because when you said you accidentally played a clip of it, I didn't have it. So Okay, let me do something real quick to make this work. Make sure I can hear. Yeah. (laughs) So I want the full effect. Yeah, uh, let me go to... Now, I think I share, I largely share your opinions on the quality and the... Some of the memory of the first one. I think I read the books finally after I saw like the BBC ones a bit. Um but I don't think I ever saw all of the BBC ones, but I remember okay. eventually I, I remember watching, it was like after I'd grown up and I was just poking back around at the, uh, the silver chair. I think I might've seen it when I was younger, but there there's a, a part from the silver chair that I, I looked up uh, and I could not stop laughing at this. So just an idea of what the BBC ones looked like here. Now, if you've read the silver chair, you know about when, they finally free the prince and find out who he is. And then the witch finds out that they freed him and she comes and attacks them, reveals her true form. All right. So are, <laughs> are you ready for this? Yes. All right. Here we go. All right. It's working. Here we go. All right. Our land above. Well said, Pony Hard. Well done. Thank you, He did it. Gentlemen. <laughs> that is a shoestring budget. Oh, right there. Oh, man. That. Oh, it's, it's almost as bad as I remember. But <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, that was, uh, that was the BBC for you there. Um, glad, <laughs> glad I was able to dig that up. Um, yes. I can still see your uh, little sound thing there. Let me get rid of that. There we go. Okay. <laughs> so, there's your... There's now you can see why it was so frightening as a child. <laughs> it's scary. It's scary bad. It gives you nightmares. <laughs> but um, okay. So how should we tackle? We've tackled sort of how the the movies 
renditions have been tackled, but just in terms of its pure original form, what was sort of your learning experience? I just heard something. Mm. I just heard a big thump. I don't know what it was. I didn't. I didn't knock my mic over this. Time, it was probably so. my neighbors. I don't know. Um, <laughs> greetings and shalom to Dragon Fist Nine Hundred. Glad you can make it. So, what was your experience in terms of learning yeah. theology or learning Christian truths from Narnia? Because we've talked about Harry yeah. Potter and how yeah. that sort of like Christians didn't tend to look for it there, even yeah. though it was intentionally sort of rooted in some Christian tradition. But with Narnia, it's kind of always been known what C.S. Yeah. Lewis was doing. Um, so what was your experience of that? And yeah. I can remember my parents reading the books to us at some point in time, me and my brother and sister. And uh, my dad was always really good about when like reading through something like this, like pointing out um, at least the gospel moments that are in the book. You know, like you... You definitely see uh, Aslan representing Christ um, when he goes to the stone tablet um, or the stone table and is is killed um, and then rises again. Um, you know, like that is a pretty powerful portrayal of the gospel. And um, I remember you know, when you, I oh, I remember when I was working in a factory, um, I actually was able to share the gospel with. Narnia is an illustration just because of that. Um, yeah. There was a guy, he had this girlfriend who was sort of a lapsed Christian, sort of. She was like living with him and he was just, he didn't know religion from, you know, and know how to differentiate ideas from that at all. He just sort of heard things here and there, but wasn't, didn't claim to be a Christian or anything. Um, and she was just wouldn't talk about it. Um mm. But then, like, I'm just doing doing some factory work standing next to him. And for whatever reason, my faith came up. And I was just able to go, um, well, have you seen Passion of the Christ? Because that had, like, come out not long before that. And he's like, um, I think he, I don't remember if he said yes. But he knew about Jesus dying. He just didn't know what it meant. Mm -hmm. um, and then I said, uh, have you heard about Narnia? Because <laughs> that was, like, <laughs> that was, like, right when Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe came up wardrobe came out from disney and for him it was just oh it's another lord of the rings thing or whatever he doesn't yeah, know the history yeah. of it or the ideas um and he was a little more familiar with that i don't know if he'd seen it but he knew the story and i was like well i mean the, the author of that he meant for aslan to be you know it's like the passion of the christ that she's just dying that's uh you know for our sins and that and he's like like for some reason that just impacted him he's like what wow and then he asked his mm. girlfriend about it and she's like oh yeah uh that's yeah that's what we believe and he's like really? why didn't you tell me about this it was like it <laughs> oh, was goodness. the weirdest thing <laughs> but, yeah but anyways yes um yeah. that so i mean i think that's probably the right at the beginning of the series i mean at least yeah. in terms of authorship uh the first one that came out has the clearest gospel presentation i would say yeah yeah, yeah. but there's like that there's underlying currents of other christian themes throughout it like what else yeah. can you remember i have I have one favorite, but well, go ahead. I was gonna yeah. say, like, I read, um, I read the books myself again later on. Um, I guess kind of in my college years, I think it was, and uh, that was the first time that I went all the way through the series. Um, so, 
my parents, I think, had read me like the first three or four. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went back and reread it in, I think, the order that the books are supposed to be read in, the, the chronological order, not the release order, not the publishing order. Mm-hmm. The set that I have is from 1970, and it's in the published order. Okay. Um, so it's not in the cr- chronological order. Um, but when we got, when I got to the last battle, when I read through that one, I, there was a lot of really cool imagery there. And um, yeah, I just, I love, one of the things I love the most about that book is kind of talks about when, um, when they finally like see, like, I guess what we would say, like, we would we would call like the new heaven and the new earth you know like the earth being reborn or whatever you want to use for language there um it's like everything became clear to them like the colors became more vivid everything became clear they could see more beauty and more you know like everything was in the form that it was supposed to be in mm-hmm. um what it was always meant to look like and it was like you know all the remnants of sin disappeared yeah and i loved that imagery yeah, I remember when like Prince Caspian finally goes, but it's before the last battle. He talks about um, it talks about not even desiring the wrong thing. He's like, I want to go and see, hmm. you know, their world. Or, Is that wrong? And Aslan's like, It's not possible for you to want something wrong now. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, that's great. It's very interesting. Um, I liked. Maybe it impacted me because I heard. Uh, the sermon I talked to you about um, from Doug Wilson called Undragoned, where he talks about C.S. Lewis's view of like Reformed theology. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, he talks about uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader with Eustace and Mm -hmm. um, the impossibility of Eustace uh, basically being able to undragon himself. That's what he named it. That's what he named the talk after was Undragoned. Ash says she's only read The Magician's Nephew. Now, that's one of my favorites. Um, that is a good one. That is a good one, yeah. I mean, hey, it's a good place to start in terms of the story chronology, even though it wasn't the first one that came out. It's the first It's the first one chronologically. Um, <clears throat> leads you right into Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But Caspian, um, yeah, that was a big theme that he touched on was the, the idea of total depravity. Although I'd say it's it's... It's a, it is very much an illustration, um, and it, it kind of hits the doctrine of total depravity, but also kind of doesn't. Like C.S. Lewis, mm. it's interesting. This is something Wilson sort of talked about in that talk, how reformed was Lewis. And he's like, there's things he says where he's actually overtly rejecting certain reformed doctrines, but then you read his definitions and he's like, oh, but he actually probably does embrace them. <laughs> yeah. And so it's tr- he says, like, I don't believe in total depravity. Um, but then you hear him define what he means by it, and he means something more like utter depravity. Um, and then you see him write in Narnia, yeah. and he shows like uh, the necessity of grace to even desire desire the things of Aslan, as it were. Um, and it's kind of Calvinistic, but <laughs> you know he doesn't use the terminology necessarily. Um, but like, and so you could take the 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 Eustace undragoning a couple ways and that like it shows his inability to change himself. However, as we talked about last week, uh, a more biblical view, it would be that he uh, doesn't want to be undragoned. Uh, whereas in the book he does. 
Um, yeah. And so it's a physical problem. It's not a heart problem. It's like he, he got himself into the physical problem because of his evil. Um, but he like in his heart wants out of it. Whereas I think more biblically speaking, we don't want to get out of it apart from God's right. grace. Um, although you could say it is kind of all S land that changes him. Um, yeah. But it is more of a physical illustration of a spiritual reality, I think. Uh, I mean, obviously it is, but uh, in more ways than one. Um. But yeah, do you, what is your favorite book? Did you say? Um, you know, I feel like I'm due for another reading of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna go with Last Battle just for right now. That one it was surprisingly deep in terms of how you know what it reminded me of was his space trilogy when you get to yeah, um yeah when you get to the last one what's it called that hideous strength yeah the way the sort of thing the way sort of <laughs> deceitful authoritarians take over yeah uh it was surprisingly deep for a kids book and showing sort of the political yeah. intrigue almost with the with the ape and the donkey um yeah or was it a baboon what was he the evil it's like a gorilla or yeah. a yeah, I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah, S- some kind of simian species. <laughs> yes, um, but that was yeah. I, he kind of did the same thing where he he in the last book like really pulls out all the stops on uh, going deep, and right. I liked that more in the Chronicles of Narnia than I liked it in the Space Trilogy. You have read only the Space because... Trilogy. What's that? So you have read the Space Trilogy. Yeah, yeah, I have. They need to move, um, they need to make movies out of those. Those would be really good or yeah. really bad depending on who made them. Yes. <laughs> um, let's see the BBC do that. Yeah. <laughs> they would need a bigger but, budget. Um, they need a bigger budget, yeah. <laughs> I I yeah, right now I'm going to say Last Battle's my favorite, but I definitely want to give those a reread. Mhm. Yeah. Um trying to think what my favorite was. Might be Having gone through them again, I think Prince Caspian really bored me a lot. But once I hit Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I was like, this is great. Like, it was way better than I remembered in terms of it, like, has just a series of themes it hits, like, one after the other. And they're all really interesting. Oh, Tash. Dragonfist says, Tash terrified me as a child. Uh, did they do all of them with BBC or not? I don't even remember. Did they get to, B- did they get I, to the last battle? I don't, I don't think they did. No. Yeah, I, I don't think they did Magician's Nephew. I don't think they did Mm-mm. A Horse and His Boy. The Horse and His Boy? A Horse and a Boy? No, I the can't horse remember. Boy. Uh, yeah, like The Magician's Nephew, The Horse and His Boy were later. Yeah. Yeah. And I, d- I don't feel like they did The Last Battle. No. I feel like The Last Battle is just... It's like the Book of Revelation. No one wants to touch it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So any, any other big themes you think, uh, hit you? I mean, boy, there's, I mean, we, we tacked, we, we, we picked a big one saying we're going to touch the whole, the whole series, but like any, any major themes you want to touch on before we do a little Narnia trivia and we're going to keep it probably a a little shorter tonight so we can have some shorter segments for later. And, uh, I know you've got some things, but, uh, but yeah, like what other Um, major, well, Perhaps yeah. there's a little bit of the perseverance of the saints. Oh, um, in not Lucy, who's the other sister? Oh, um, yes. She falls away for a while. Yeah, and yet 
comes back. That's actually something um, again. That's something again that Doug Wilson touches on, where people are like, "Does she come back?" I'm trying to remember. Or they hint at like her not being I'm around. Sure she does. Yeah, like some Christians have taken that as her like ultimately falling mm-hmm. away. Uh, but okay. Wilson, Wilson's like, "Are you are you telling me that there were four thrones and in the ultimate heaven, the ultimate Narnia, there's only three thrones?" Come now. He's <laughs> like, but he ta- he does talk about the fact that even though Edmund comes in to Narnia uh depraved there's a throne waiting for him mm. and the theology behind that which is very interesting yeah. um uh, that's that's one I hadn't even noticed yeah but um, I, I love I love the interactions between Aslan and Lucy um mm-hmm. there's a lot there you know like her innocence in approaching him mm-hmm. um not that it mirrors anything related to us and our sin nature but like there's a naivety on her part and understanding him. Mm-hmm. And he uses that to explain himself to her and re- really not explain, but reveal himself to her. And I love those scenes where he talks about, you know, um, you know, I'm good, but I'm not safe. Right. You know, like, you know, he's a lion. Come on. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I could go on and on about the message from Wilson just because of, the the list of things he points out but then i remember he talks to uh he talks about um what's her name in silver chair the girl paul uh not polly was it polly what's her name yep going blank on these things i should have done more looking in yeah um but the the girl she she's talking to aslan jill 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 pole yep yeah i was thinking polly but it's paul jill paul yeah um, I never really understood the whole he's not a safe lion. Oh, Dragon Fist. Yeah, well, he's talking... Uh, well, I guess that relates to what I was about to point out where Jill is like at the river and she's like, uh, I'll find somewhere else to go if you won't leave. And he's like, there is nowhere else to go. Um, And she's just sitting there terrified. Like if she leans over and drinks with him behind her, then will he eat her? Will, will he, and then... The wording is interesting. It says her mind made itself up, hmm. um, and she and then she went and drank. But there is that there is a certain interesting vocabulary that's used oftentimes yeah. about uh, them coming to Narnia. Like he says, you you would not have. There's a point where they call out to him to come and help them in Narnia after he's brought them there, and he says, "You wouldn't have called out to me if I hadn't called out to you." Hmm. Says that at one point. Um, yeah, as yeah. far as the safe thing, I think what yeah, some of the imagery that I see through it is kind of re- referring to the fear of the Lord. Yeah, and and just seeing the power of God. You know, like God, God is obviously kind and merciful and loving, and He is love, and He is our uttermost safety. He's our refuge, um, but He is also magnificent beyond description mm-hmm. and he's not our, he doesn't answer to us right right our, our our plans are not safe around him yeah um, he's sovereign so he's outside yeah. of our sphere of power he is he he has every right and rule uh right to rule and right to authority mm-hmm. over us yeah 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 that's i'd say a major theme in it is like yeah the the fear 
uh, like the the lion imagery. It is, I mean, it is biblical imagery. The lion of the tribe of Judah, um, but the yeah the the danger of that creature, and also that creature being the king of the jungle, as it were. You could point all kinds yeah. of all kinds of connections there, but that whole idea that you you're kind of frozen with fear if you don't know what's about to happen in front of a lion and Aslan strikes that into whoever he sees. Um, and he, he does some violence from time to time in the books, um, against Mm -hmm. his enemies. Um, he's not, he's not, uh, just, you know, a timid creature. And so it it just, I think it's a good choice on Lewis's part in terms of symbolizing all that, all that should be taken into consideration when you, uh, when you follow God. Um, yeah. Yeah. Dragonfist says Calvinism, maybe I think referring to a previous statement, but yes, we're going to be talking about that tonight in relation to this <laughs> <laughs> to an extent. Um, did I say what my favorite book was? Yeah. I think I was saying last, last, my last time through, I got a lot out of Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Okay. Um, before that, I think Magician's Nephew was my favorite. Mm. Uh, I still like it a lot. Um, but uh, the last battle has like way more in it than you'd think if you haven't read it since you were a kid. Um, Oop, I froze up a little bit there. A little bit. Sorry about that, guys. Just... You don't want to stare up my nose. <laughs> I was reaching for my water that apparently is not back there. Ah. Well, we can... Uh, let's I'm see. still frozen. There you are. We're back. Nice. Well, we haven't we haven't lost connection entirely as of yet, but... Uh... So any other themes you'd like to touch on in terms of Narnia before we uh before we move? I think I think I'm good. All right. Yes, so uh in short we recommend it. We don't need to necessarily um defend it in ter- like we have defended previous, you know, <laughs> uh movies slash uh pieces of art uh yeah. in relationship to I... Christianity because it's so integral overt it's so overtly connected to christianity although i do uh, think it's hilarious like in my upbringing we weren't allowed to watch things with magic and witchcraft and yet the name of the book the first one at least has witch in the title and -hmm. there's magic throughout the books and yet i was allowed to watch and i was allowed to read yep yep aslan saying oh yeah this is dragon fist he says aslan saying he's in our world uh, but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name is a perfect pointer to Jesus, given the symbols Lewis employs throughout the books. Yeah. Yes, it's a good conclusion. Um, does he say that at the end of... No, he doesn't say it at the end of Last Battle because they're actually with him. But like it's when he finally sends them out. When mm-hmm. I think it's like when Lucy... Or not Lucy. When Susan and Peter go for the last time, I think, before like forever. Um, he says that to them. Uh, there was one other thing I was going to say. Oh yeah. I mean, we, I suppose we could have more of a a deep theological talk about controversies if we were to talk about C.S. Lewis's actual theology. Um, there's like a couple issues, like there's some hints at like, uh, inclusivism in the last battle, uh, like worship of another God being counted to God. Uh, if your heart is right, which is not really how it works um there's a little bit so there's like there's some issues in the theology potentially and then if you look at lewis's life at least early on his theology of scripture wasn't the best uh he was not an inerrantist um and there were other at least early on again i think 
if you go later and later and later into his life, he's gets better and better and better in his theology from what I understand, particularly as you get to a lot of his nonfiction, uh, later, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we could, I'm not as knowledgeable about that as like his fiction per se, but, um, but I mean, there would be a lot there if we chose to pursue it, but, uh, in terms of Narnia, we have a good question in the chat. Oh yeah. Who Who do you you guys think was more influential? Lewis or Tolkien? Well, actually there's a a couple ways you can answer that. Go ahead. (laughs) What? Um, I have a split thought on that. Yeah. I think Lewis is more influential in Christianity in general. Yeah. But I think Tolkien is more influential in fictional writing. Yeah. And well, but you could subsume in a, in a sense you could subsume Lewis into Tolkien because yeah, Tolkien was such a big influence on Lewis um bringing him to Christ, I guess. Yeah. Even though he was Roman Catholic, uh Lewis and I, I guess it's interesting. Lewis he it seems early on he he tried to be much more um what we today we would say ecumenical. Yeah. Uh in a lot of his uh his work he very much included Roman Catholics in his audience. Whereas later on, I guess later in his life he got more and more Protestant. Um which actually caused some tension with Tolkien. Um apparently. I, I don't know the details of that. I just sort of heard that summary of yeah. it. But um but yeah, I think Tolkien I feel like Tolkien has had more cultural, like general cultural influence. Lewis maybe has had more Christian influence. Yeah. Uh, A lot of people like to quote Lewis at this point in time, especially in our tribe, uh, which is funny to me because there is that tension of whether he was reformed or not. And yet our tribe loves to quote him to pieces. Oh, sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Absolutely. Uh, Let's see here. There's a guy named Ryan Reeves, and he actually has a lecture series about Lewis and Tolkien, one of the best analysis I've uh, of each I've ever seen. Interesting. Yeah, send it in Discord, Dragonfist. That'd be cool. Ash says, "Weren't they friends, Lewis Tolkien?" Yeah, they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that made for some interesting. I guess I guess Tolkien didn't like the genre Lewis was going for in Narnia. The, that kind of like really like kind of beat for beat allegory in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, He's like he when he talked about like Lord of the Rings, he was like, "No, I want to actually like write history, um, a, fi- a literal fictional history." You know? Yeah. Um, One of my favorite yeah. stories, and I don't know if it's true. I've just I've heard it. Mm-hmm. Is uh, they they were part of a group um, that would get together in a pub and write and all that kind of good stuff, mm-hmm. and. Uh, they challenged each other to write a sci-fi series. And of course, Lewis wrote the space trilogy and Tolkien just never wrote anything (laughs) because he wasn't going to do it. That's funny. Uh, All right. Uh, So I think we've, we've sort of, uh, we sort of scattershotted that we got went a few different places, but it was good. Um, Yeah. Touched on some themes. Um, Again, I can't recommend that, uh, Wilson seminar and well it wasn't his seminar but his his talk in the conference was so good um but uh yes maybe I'll put a like a link to that in the description of the future video um uh, and of course I think I already sent it to you but uh all right so uh are we ready for some Narnia trivia let's go for it all righty All 
All right. Well, here we are. That's our uh, passage for later, but we can just switch on over to here. All right. So I don't know how this is going to go. I tried not to look at it, but they all looked really easy from the titles. So like, if you've read them, you'll do fine with this. But I'm like, this one says, this is for those who think they know everything about Narnia. Now, I don't even think that. So this could be really bad. Um, <laughs> it's quite hard if you don't know your stuff. But there's 10 questions, I guess. So here we go. Let's see how it goes. Which one of these, which one of the following names is the name of the ruined city on the planet where Charn is located? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's see here. Brambin, Varuna, Sol, Sorlois, Tarva. I'm going to say either C or D. Okay. Um, uh, gut feeling says D. Me too. That's both our gut, so we'll go with it. The other ones just sound weird. They don't sound <laughs> Lewisian. Yeah. Let's make up a word. Um, what type of fish did Mr. Beaver catch for the uh, Pevensey's Supper? Trout. trout. I think it was trout. Yes. Yep. Her dad says Tarva. Ash says, all right, cool. Good. What side of the battle lines did King Edmund make the cougars and other cats go to in the horse and his boy? Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> they, they went as deep in this as they could. Oh my gosh. It's like a, a, a piece of a line from a, oh my gosh. This is from the horse and his boy. Uh, left. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. What fish did Trumpkin and the Pevensies eat when on the island? <laughs> I don't pay attention to fish that much. Oh, <laughs> this is like, there's only 10 questions and this is what they picked. Okay. Mackerel. Mackerel. Mackerel works. Okay. <laughs> what is the sign of a great Narnian horse? Ah. House. What? You said horse. Oh, house. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> a sign of a great Narnian house. A, Mackerel sounds a red good. line. Red lion, hammer and a star. Yeah, I'd say probably a red lion. I think that's right. How long had Prince Rillian been in his enchantment? Oh, what was it? Ten years? Yeah. I think it was a good long time. I don't think, I think it was a good round ten years. Do you feel, feel that? Yeah, that All works. Right. How many Kalorman ships aligned on Care Paravel and conquered Narnia? <laughs> Uh, oof, this is so obscure, man. Holy yeah. cow. Uh, 20. Okay. Yeah. Go with the maximum. They were intimidating. Yeah. What was the name of the, a noble family in King Mirez's time? Who was King Mirez? I forget. He was in, uh, Prince Caspian. Uh, okay. Buffins, Dukes. Pisarids, there wasn't one. The name of a noble family. Hmm. Hmm. Ding, 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 ding. Uh, whatever's your what, whatever's in your gut, I'll click it. Uh, Pisarids. Okay. Sounds good. What is the color of Jules' horn? Silver, white, indigo, blue, light pink. Was it silver? 
go with silver. My face is frozen. That's okay. Well, that's it then. Uh, oh, there's a one we got to... How many arms <laughs> does Tash have? Oh, Tash was a god. Or no. Wait. Tash. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's like the equivalent of like the other religion in Narnia. And Tash mm. was the false god. And at some point they say how many arms Tash has. It's like a fake a fake deity. Okay. Um, remember they tried to combine them. It was Tashlan. Oh, yeah, battle. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember how many arms, though. Hmm. I don't know. Hmm. Six. Six <laughs> arms. <laughs> I feel like it would be like something crazy, like 100 arms or 10 arms or... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Got a gut answer? Are you going to say six? <laughs> uh, Yeah, I don't know, honestly. <laughs> I'll say... Six or ten. <laughs> I'll say ten arms. Okay. Okay. Watch it be six. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. This is going to be terrible. This is not, I did not feel good about this. Oof, right off the so, bat. I oh, I felt really Sword good. Voice. I felt really good about Tarva. I did too. Uh, trout. Trout. Hey, we got our fish. Left. Left. Hey, commercial. Go away. That's a big commercial. Okay, mackerel. Pavenders. Pavenders. That's, that's a red lion. Is a hammer and star. Found in the Voyage of the Dawn Shredder. Oh, I thought wow. it was going to be a red lion. Oh, 10 years. 10 years. 20 ships. 20. Hey, hey. Pessarids. Yes. Silver. It was indigo blue? Wow. I thought it was silver. Four arms. Four. Okay. Fine. Fine. Uh, <laughs> five out of 10? Five out of 10 is not bad. That's not so bad. All right. Okay, fine, 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 fine. Well, there you have it, sir. Alrighty. <laughs> Gotta go read my books. Uh, fun trivia point scored 75. It doesn't say what the... Oh, 42% of players... Well, well, I'm trying to see. Average score was 4 out of 10, so we did better than average. <laughs> so, hey, yeah. fine with me. All right. So, let me check something here. Okay. Cool. So there's our trivia. There's our, our movie slash movies slash book slash franchise slash author of the week. I had fun with it, but uh, all right. Okay. And I will say, side note here, I have zero frames dropped so far tonight. Nice. So that's no encouraging. frames were dropped. That's in the making of this film. Okay. All right. So are we ready for our theology corner? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so we've already kind of mentioned what we're doing this week. We're continuing off of last week. Last, well, last time, two weeks ago, uh, we talked about the doctrine of total depravity, the first in the five points of Calvinism. And so I definitely would recommend that if you missed that first one, you go back. I did upload just the chapter. It's called Explaining Total Depravity. Uh, so it's a couple videos ago. Maybe the last one. I don't know, like two videos ago. But anyways, um, so this week, yeah, we are going to be moving on from the T to the U. And so how would we like to tackle this? We probably want to do, what, like a summary explanation of the doctrine? 
and then and then some scripture and defense of the doctrine. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay, so yeah, would you like to take a swing at like a, a summary sure. definition of unconditional election? Why do we say why do we say unconditional election instead of just election? Because we've been told to. <laughs> Those who are paying us, we've been yes. paid off to defend uh, this heresy. No, okay. Yeah, we've been we've just bought in hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess the idea behind unconditional is just that there's no conditions attached, either foreseen or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way R.C. Sproul defines it is there's no foreseen action or condition met. So there's the unconditional by us that induces God to decide to save us, but that election rests upon God's sovereign decision to save whomever he is pleased to save. Mm-hmm. And so what do you say to someone who got reaction, like re- response to that and says, but there's all kinds of at least basic yeah. conditions to salvation believe in order to be justified. So how can election be unconditional? Right. Well, I feel like when you have to, go into like the answer of like what is faith and what is belief and repentance and stuff like that really it comes down to going all the way back to regeneration Mm -hmm. um you know so regeneration and, and when we break this down obviously it sounds like we're saying there's like all this amount of time that happens you know all that stuff but really it's it it can be as close to simultaneous as humanly possible god is over the milliseconds as much as he is over the minutes and hours mm-hmm. um so as as this is all happening we are probably unaware of the regeneration taking place to give us the ability to believe um the holy spirit ga- granting us the gift of faith mm-hmm. um cuz faith is a gift it's not something that we um contribute to use that word the only thing we contribute necessary for salvation is our sin um <laughs> yeah i think it was i think but, it was edwards who said yeah uh we contribute nothing to our salvation but the sin that makes it necessary yes yeah 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 so essentially what what this gets to is that god is not placing prior conditions upon us um that would make us worthy of his decision his choice to save us and and really what remember calvinism as we explained the the idea behind tulip these are responses to the remonstrance which were five objections to the theology taught by calvin and so i think what the i don't have it off the top of my head i don't have it on paper in front of me but i think essentially what the remonstrance were saying why um, Calvinists, quote unquote, responded to this was that they were saying the idea was that God had kind of looked into the corridor of time and seen who would choose Him, and therefore He cho- chose them as well. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a condition foreseen. Yeah. Now I don't know if you're going to dive into Scripture soon, but I think maybe be, yeah. given that you said that, I kind of want to jump over. I have yeah. I actually have Romans eight up already, but I want to jump back to. Uh, Ephesians here. Let me. Okay. Uh, let's see here, because there's a point I want to make about that thing from the the remonstrance. Um, let me see here. Ephesians two. 
I'll say one and two. Uh, let's see. So, all right. So he says, Paul says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. Now that's basically the same word behind it as elected to, to elect and to choose. I always think about, uh, Saruman when he says you have elected the way of pain. Um, (laughs) but, uh, the idea the idea is to choose, uh, even as he chose us in him, and he says, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And now he leads up to this main point here, to the praise of his glorious grace. And grace means, well, it's the power of God. Uh, to change us, but it's also, it's the unmerited favor of God as well. Mm-hmm. And the idea of it being unmerited favor, I think once you start speaking like an Arminian here and you say, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, but uh, it was out of foresight of something in our mm-hmm. response. Once you say that, I think it's actually turning Paul's point upside down. Because it's the praise of his glorious grace, the reason he said before the foundation of the world was to take it off of our merits. And so to then talk about the timelessness of God, which we do believe in, to talk about the the omniscience of God, which we do believe in, but to take that and drag it into this discussion is to cancel out Paul's very point. Um, And so I think just taking the very purpose of Ephesians 1 here, uh, I think is a very strong, a strong defense of the idea of unconditional election. Yeah. Um, Cause a, a knowledgeable Arminian will say, we, we talked about this when we critiqued some, some teaching from uh, Mike Winger, a knowledgeable Arminian will say, Oh yeah, I believe God chose us. I yeah. believe in election because those are biblical terms. And if they know they're biblical yeah. terms, they'll want to affirm the words, but then the theology behind it gets very uh, yeah. complicated. And I think the danger is the unknowing and I'm not, Please understand, I'm not trying to say this from a harsh perspective, but the unknowing Arminian... Yeah, I would say the the intuitive Arminian is what I tend to say. Okay, yeah, sounds nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the intuitive Arminian. It's sort of like... Uh, the... Uses, like in Romans 8, the word foreknew, and they're like, see, you know, he... he, he it's something he knew, not mm-hmm. necessarily something he determined. Yeah, we'll get, um, in, we'll get into that because yeah. I want to talk about Romans 8. Yeah, I say intuitive Arminian just because... Yeah, they like to, there's like old school Arminius yeah. who was responding to Calvin really knowledgeably. And if you read him, he's like super deep, like yeah, biblically yeah. knowledgeable, theologically knowledgeable. And he had these pretty complex objections, but then you get to today and it's more of like an intuitive, like Pelagianism almost. And it's not mm-hmm. really connected to Arminius yeah. almost. A deep, default mode. Default, yep. <laughs> it's just kind of like, yeah, default mode. But yeah. in in that the way they'll try to address the, I mean, I say this because this is the way I tried to address like sure. Ephesians one. Um, you'll try to address it from the standpoint of what God is electing. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yes, there are the elect because scripture obviously says that. Um, mm-hmm. But what was predestined for the elect was the way of salvation, mm-hmm. not necessarily who 
would yeah. be saved. Yeah, I remember James and, White was debating Leighton Flowers from uh, Soteriology 101. Leighton Flowers, like his whole channel basically is dedicated to refuting Calvinism. But mm. um, uh, it came to a cross-examination and a debate between the two. And James White basically eventually said, look, did God elect people or did God elect a system? Um, and he like kept sort of trying to get around the question, but was pretty clear the audience understood the question that once you move into this sort of corporate election idea and things like that, what God is electing is a system. He's not, you can't like say my name was written on his hand in the same kind with the same kind of personal gravity and weight. Um, yeah. So, uh, were you moving into a, go ahead if you were going to say something. (laughs) No, um, I will say, because we've mentioned it before, R.C. Sproul had a habit of changing some of the letters of Tulip. Mm -hmm. He favored sovereign election over unconditional. And I don't really remember all the reasons for that. Um, As we said, instead of total total depravity, he used radical corruption. Mm -hmm. Um, I always thought it was interesting the way he would kind of adjust some of the language. I'm fine with either, actually, I think. What was his word again? Sovereign election? Sovereign sovereign election. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, effectual calling is connected yeah. to that. I think what we can actually, if you'd like, I mean, do you have a specific text you wanted to do first? Because I was thinking we could do Romans 8, um, if you'd like. I, Romans 8 is good. Um, I mean, obviously it's good as the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Romans I, 8 and I, 9, I, we got to talk about 9 as well, but go ahead. Yeah, there are some scriptures that do reference... Um, specifically about people being chosen since we were just talking about that mm-hmm. um john six thirty seven uh through 39 all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me i will never cast out for i've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that i should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day yeah there's and, certain things you know, there's certain there's like a whole bunch of uh, that's actually a text i think again james white if you ever want to if you okay. ever want to hear um, great debates on this topic, that's a text he often uses that really pins down a lot of, he'll really push on that text in a yeah. cross-examination setting where, because what you see there is, well, first it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, which means that the Father giving is the cause of the coming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it also shows, kind of like the Romans 8 chain of salvation, the group of mm-hmm. people at the beginning is the same as the group of the, same as the, group of the people at the end. Yeah. Those who... Get, who those whom he gives will come all of them will be raised up on the last day it's which is a salvation category yeah um yeah. acts thirteen forty eight says and when the gentiles heard this the gospel they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed yeah it's like a throwaway line it's yeah just sort of this is it's interesting. It's almost like just a presupposition of the biblical authors of the New right. Testament authors. Yeah, and in the context of that, you know, Luke is Luke is writing in a narrative format. He's he's recording history happening. So it's interesting that you know there is a theological point, kind of like you said, almost like a throwaway there. Yeah, he's um, giving but a story. He has an mentioned. opinion on it. He has an interpretation of the history that he's writing. It's interesting. It's like, by the way, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's kind of all I have until, um, I guess Romans eight and maybe yeah. even nine. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I could do like I could go on forever about these passages, but I can sort of give my yeah. This is sort of a distilled version as as to how I've sort of heard this passage explained. Um, All right. Uh, but it, it starts here. You mentioned, for instance, people tend to intuitively read this. Uh, oh well, those whom he foreknew came before predestined, and so this is a, a they'll they'll tend to use this passage here um, as a counter to, for instance, our interpretation of Ephesians one. It says he chose us before the foundation of the world. Ah, but there was this foreknowledge thing here before the choosing. But actually, well, first of all, it doesn't say he foreknew a choice. It doesn't say he foreknew faith. It doesn't say mm-hmm. he foreknew actions or anything like that. It says he foreknew uh, uh, those whom he foreknew. In other words, people. Mm-hmm. He foreknew people. And so I think uh, if you look in the Old Testament in particular, you have to ask, what does it mean for God to foreknow or for God to know a person? Uh, if you look, I guess, at the calling of Abraham, some it depends on the translation you use, but in some places it says, uh, in some translations it says, he chose him in order to bring about X, Y, and Z promises. And other translations say he knew him in order to bring about X, Y, and Z promises. In other words, it's not to say either translation is bad, but it's to say that the idea of God knowing a person in the saving sense and God choosing a person are almost synonymous. And so in other words, if that's what Paul's talking about here, then to foreknow someone is synonymous with election. Yeah. Um, And so those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so our conformity to Christ was predestined and the predestination was built on the foundation of election. In other words, election is the choosing of God. Predestination is the, uh, the plan for our life that he, he has on the basis of that choice. Um, in order that, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called and notice it says those whom he predestined, he called. And then it says those whom he called, he justified. And so we can talk about the general call. So this is why theologians often split up between the idea of a general call and an effectual call. There's the general call in which all are called, to repent all are all are called but it's a call to a an obstinate and totally depraved people as we talked about scripturally last week in order for that call to actually be effective it has to be what is called an effectual call a call that is coupled with the power of the gospel to change the heart coupled with regeneration um and we know that because all who are called in the sense being talked about here are justified mm-hmm it's not all are called and then some are justified. It's those whom are called are justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And this is called the golden chain of redemption because from foreknowledge to glorification, it's the same group all the way through. Um, but today we're ta- we're really focusing in on the foreknew, on the election, the unconditional election. Um, and because God is the one who brings about the faith, he doesn't elect us on the basis of seeing whether or not we have faith. We will because he gives it to us. Right. If you're going to talk about him foreknowing a a something, he does foreknow what he's going to do. (laughs) He Mm -hmm. foreknows what we're going to do because he foreknows what he's going to do. Yeah. Um, But again, I think there, that word foreknowledge is more synonymous with election. 
Um, but then he breaks into, we, we could talk even more about Romans nine, which I think we should, cause I think it's probably the central text that has an extended talk about, uh, election. Um, but, uh, do you have anything to throw in there? No, I mean, uh, I think John Piper in his, um, classic teaching on Tulip, um, <laughs> yep. does a really good job with that idea of foreknew, um, talking about what you just said, calling. And I think mm-hmm. there was like, even maybe going into the depth of understanding the difference between what we think of foreknowing and what scripture means by foreknowing on even like the intimate level of it. Like this isn't just the idea of like a knowledge of something, mm-hmm. you know, like, Oh, I know, I know that on Tuesday, my small group will meet. Mm-hmm. Like that's almost, that's almost to the point of what I would have thought under the old Arminian system I was in. It was like <clears throat> God had some ability to look down the passageways of time and see what would happen. And so he knew that that was coming up. Mm-hmm. It really kind of cheapens the idea that God is all powerful. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, it just, it takes away the grace element of the definition. Yeah. It's so like we could be like kind of, we can ooh and ah at God's sort of crystal ball fortune teller ability to tell the future, but that's not right. what makes it impressive. Um, something Piper pointed out in, I think it was Isaiah. He says, uh, I declare the end from the beginning, which yeah. an Arminian would affirm. He declares the end from the beginning. He can see it. But this was kind of what it came down to when I had this kind of lengthy discussion with Doug Tenaple was the, the second part of the verse says, for I will accomplish all my purpose. In other words, the reason God is able to declare the end from the beginning is until the future is because God creates the future. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where his foreknowledge comes from. Is like that's that's the biblical connection between omniscience and omnipotence, um, and the two flow together. Not just philosophically, but you can show it in in texts like that. Um, and it and then that that's sort of a general principle I think you see in Scripture, but then it applies obviously to salvation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think one thing that often comes up and it's not connected to what you just said, but one thing that comes up in this as far as like a concern when you start talking about, you know, the elect and being elected um mm-hmm. is am I one of the elect? Yep. Um I think the reality is I don't want to oversimplify this, but I do want to say that if you are wondering that in a way that is like I love God, but I don't know if I'm elect. Uh-huh. You, you kind of have your answer there. You love God. You can't love God except by the Holy Spirit yes, in I... you. So you answer your own question when you say, I love God. Yeah. Now, I know that people will throw out there, well, even the demons and, and Satan believe in God. And it's like, well, that's a different belief right there, first of all. Um, it wasn't granted unto them to believe in the Son of mm-hmm. God for salvation. Um, and also, redemption isn't for them. So Yeah, um, and, and I'd say, like, if you just read the context of these passages, there yeah. it's clear the intention of these is not to create introspection. It's to create yeah. assurance. Right. In other words, like Romans, the the passages we just read in Romans eight follow the promise: all things work together for good for those who are who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. And then mm-hmm. it gets into those whom He foreknew, He predestined, called, justified, glorified. In other words, like if you love God, 
the reason you love God, the reason you believe in God is because of all of this predestining electing work. Yeah. It's giving the grounding of what you're experiencing. And so, and so like, it's not giving you a mystery like from before time that you don't have access to, you have access to it in the sense that you have access to the fact that you have faith. Yeah. Um, and so these are promises. These are assurances to you that God, God's work in his choice is effective. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think also, you know, continuing on the conversation, one of the reasons I'm glad we're going to Romans nine, um, is because I feel like Romans nine is where like the apologetics comes into it. Mm -hmm. Um, it answers the question, is it fair? Um, because I think that's one of the most common arguments against, even from believers, is, well, this isn't fair. Um, fairness is a tough question, because fairness often mean, it often means something different to different people. And so the, I think what Romans adjusts, uh, what Romans 9 uh, uh, tackles is, is it just, mm-hmm. not is it fair? Yeah. Um, you know, if, if if I'm a potter, which that is a scriptural analogy um, about this, uh, if I'm a potter, I have every right to create what I want to create. There's no fairness involved. Mm-hmm. Um, if I make a pot or I make a plate, it's right. Yeah, yeah. Or you, or you might say, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose I suppose fairness and justice for some could be interchangeable, but maybe yeah. what you're saying is like it's not. Um, it's fair, but it's not always. It's not always grace. Hmm. It's not always like because it's grace, because grace is grace, because it's unmerited favor. It cannot yeah. be demanded. Right. Yeah, um, and that's why I think fairness, because it means such different things to yeah. all people, um, that argument. I know it's relative in the sense that it is a legitimate discussion, but it's not relevant in the sense of like, it ceases to be grace if it has to be fair. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, right. And so this is why we needed to tackle total depravity first, because this is why I said, I think once you dive into these specific doctrines, uh, once you get to the election piece, you realize whether or not someone has a proper doctrine of what human you, the universal reality of human sin actually is because if sin is universal then damnation is universally warranted and on that basis you can begin to talk about election because yeah. then with that lump of clay god can really do what he wants yep. He's, it's not that he can do whatever he wants in this i mean he can but it's not just that he can do whatever he wants in the sense of he could damn an innocent person. That goes against his character. He yeah. doesn't damn innocent people. But if he has a sinful lump, mm-hmm. then he can do what he wants with that. Yeah. Um, and that's what he established early on in Romans before we got to Romans 9, is yeah. the sinful nature of that lump. Um, yeah. Ash points out in the chat, if things were fair, all of us would be going to hell like we deserve. Right. And that's the thing. Once you get to this doctrine, you realize whether or not someone believes that. Yeah. Because once you talk about election, then if a feeling of, oh, but wait a second, uh, he should give a chance to everyone. But if he should give a chance to everyone, then you're defining sin not as something blameworthy. It's more like a sickness. Yeah. It's like we're all sick and we need a doctor. And of course, God loves people. So he's going to 
he's going to be a nice doctor. Um, so take your Tylenol and do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> but if he's a judge and we're actually blameworthy, then we're already past justice. Justice yeah. is hell. Election is grace. Yeah. Um, and that's where we, that if those truths are in place, then Romans nine, I think can make more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so shall we dig into Romans nine a little bit? Yeah. Um, I think Piper does a good job in his book, just the justification of God, which is like a, it's a really deep book in terms of, um, Greek study. And he just focuses on like the first 23 verses of this 24 verses of this. Uh, but he goes into like all of the original language and the different scholarly arguments, but what he does is he establishes the Romans eight context of it in that he says, look, he just gave all of these gospel promises in Romans eight. Um, and so that raises a question. If you know about Israel, Israel has turned away. So are God's promises really that certain if his people can fall away? And so Romans nine, it's not actually the main point of Romans nine is not actually to talk about election, but election is the answer to the, that question about Israel, uh, which makes it make more sense. And so he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Nice uh, proof text for the deity of Christ right there, I'll tell you. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And so, like, if you read verse 6 in light of that Israel question, then it kind of puts that uh, puts that question in context here. And it puts Romans 9 in context. Israel falling away does not mean the word of God or the promises of God. Like I just talked about in Romans eight, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that they failed. And his answer is for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, his point is Israel fell away, but real Israel did not fall away. Yeah. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. There's this quote. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return. Sarah shall have a son and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac. And then here we go right here. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or good or bad. And there's the unconditional aspect again. You could relate Mm -hmm. this back. Now he's using an illustration here, but the principle of before they were born, or you might say in the Ephesians context, before the foundation of the world. Right. Um, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls Piper points out here, you would think given all of the other Pauline language, he would say not because of works, but because of faith. That's not what he says. He says, because of him who calls, hmm. um, and the call leads to the faith, yeah. but the call, which results from the election, that election is unconditional. Um, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hate it. And people often say, well, the Calvinist is reading this wrong. I have another interpretation. 
What makes, I think, Calvinists rightly feel very certain about their interpretation here is what Paul begins to do here. He starts preempting our questions. Mm-hmm. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Which you would ask if you hear that doctrine we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Unconditional election. That doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound just. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, <laughs> which uh, we tend to base it again on our free will, don't we? Mm-hmm. In our intuitive theologies. But he says it's not human will. In other words, our choices to have faith yeah. even, or our exertion, our works, but on God who has mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And that's probably the harshest stating of it. And it relates it to Pharaoh. Um, but again, this is, again, this is, he's working with a fallen lump. And yeah. so his hardening of a person doesn't come from his creation of his creation directly of an evil heart. He commanded Pharaoh to repent, but without regeneration, which means that Pharaoh resisted inevitably. And that was God's purpose. Mm -hmm. And then he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Again, preempting us. (laughs) But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and he... Her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And then it sort of, it comes out of the election discussion and then it goes into, again, completing that, the answer to that question. Why, what are we to think if Israel has fallen away? He says, because spiritual Israel is believers from Jew and Gentile. And often the Armenian will continue on here and say, yeah, but then he says, you know, they, they achieved it by faith. And so he hardens people who don't believe, but he's merciful to those who believe. But again, you're basically canceling out the before they were born or had done anything good or evil, unconditional aspects that Paul describes. Yeah. And if you read the rest of Romans and Ephesians and other passages, we know that faith is a gift of God. Mm-hmm. And so pointing out that God has mercy on those who have faith does not cancel out that election is, it doesn't cancel out the fact that election is unconditional. Um, yeah. But uh, there's probably kind of, uh, Piper said, uh, in, when he was in school learning these things, like he wrote in uh, like a, he called it like his class blue book. I don't remember what that was, but he said, <laughs> Romans nine is a roaring tiger seeking to devour free willers like me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, like I remember being in Bible college and we just didn't cover beyond Romans eight no. until my senior year. And our professor, who we sometimes wondered if he was kind of borderline Calvinist, uh, <laughs> asked us what we wanted to learn. And we said, we want the rest. We want Romans 9 through 16. Yep. And he's like, you know, he had the twinkle in his eyes, like, oh, goody. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I always appreciated that, though, because these are tough passages. When mm-hmm. you're an Arminian and you're going through these things, um, 
Ephesians 1 as well for me was kind of at that point where I was starting to see the doctrines of grace. And it was like one week I remember teaching through predestination as systematic. It was determining a system, predestining a system for us to be saved. Right. And the next week being like, yeah, guys, what I taught last week was wrong. Uh, it's absolutely about people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So this is this it's tough stuff if your intuition is just to say free will, uh, my choice, God foreknew. That's the things you've heard. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I love I love the fact that there are people who are willing to take a deeper look at these passages. Even mm-hmm. John one, it talks about us receiving God, mm-hmm. uh, receiving Christ, and being given the right to be called children of God. But then it it goes on to say. Um, not by our will or effort or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it says by God. So yep. even there, like the idea of faith, uh, are receiving the son, um, is back to your point you were making. Yeah. Faith is there, but because of God. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. As, as he is a portion to each a measure of faith. <laughs> yeah. Ash says without the work of the Holy spirit, would anyone really choose God? Nope. No. And that's, I guess, not everyone. If we simply are relying on our intuition to come up with this theology, I mean, we're kind of like, oh, well, yeah. It's like, well, what about the, what if someone who God hasn't chosen believes? That's often what I hear. That's kind of what comes yeah, yeah. comes up in, in this is like, well, if it's unconditional election, then we paint a picture in our head. If we, if we hear, oh, yeah. So this is why last episode and this episode need to go together is because uh, without the first point, we intuitively think about a, a choice to believe as, you know, could happen, might happen, might not happen. And humans are sort of autonomous floating out there, maybe could go any way they want. And so then we hear unconditional election in that state of mind. And then we get a picture in our head of, oh, well, we get a whole bunch of people, you know, coming to the gates of heaven, knocking and saying, I want to get in, I want to get in. And God goes, eh, I'll take some of you. <laughs> but that's not the picture you get if you have total depravity defined properly. Yeah. Um, it's actually people running from God and he, it's the, like the way I've summarized it is it's not a matter of God uh, choosing. How did I put it? Uh, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not a matter of God choosing which of his, Oh yes. It's not a matter of God choosing which of his children to save. That's often the illustration you'll hear from some objecting, someone objecting. Would you just not choose one of your own children? Mm. But it's it's not a matter of God choosing which of his children to save. It's a matter of God choosing which of his enemies to make children. Yeah. Um, it's the best summary I can I can think of. But yeah. Well, if, if you if you actually think. Um... You know, like that somehow there's going to be these people out there who are kind of straying outside of the total depravity. And so someone might believe but not be elect. Um, I can only picture R.C. Sproul turning in his grave at the idea that there might be some free atoms out there um, not doing what God has ordained them. R.C. Sproul famously said that there's not a stray atom in the universe. So a maverick, no... mo- a maverick molecule. Maverick. Yeah. Yes. So there's nobody out there who is 
somehow falling between the cracks of this who believes but wasn't elect. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. And then R.C. Sproul again. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> <laughs> what? That's that's yeah. that one's probably better than the other guys saying, uh, oh, "What's wrong with you?" Yeah. Blasphemy. Of course, the idea of the idea of an unelect believer who produced faith from their unregenerate heart. Yeah. Yes. We don't know our own hearts if we believe that. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's often, I, I suppose some of that can come from, there's different people you might hear object to these things. Some of them would be young believers. Some of them would be older believers. But I think a lot of time, if it's an older believer, they've shifted from knowing what they were saved from and they are beginning to see the change in their life as something self-produced um, perhaps in that yeah. they don't realize like, and that in that sense, they, they see more in common with the unbeliever than maybe they should. Not that we should completely like put ourselves above the unbeliever, but only in the sense that there has been like an objective spiritual change that God has done in the mm-hmm. believer. There's something that needs to be done in the unbeliever for them to embrace Christ. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you don't see election as a, a, a a God, God's choosing and plan to do a supernatural act, um, not just to willy-nilly choose someone who's neutral morally. Um, it needs to be a supernatural act. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm just sort of rambling and, at that point. but <laughs> And there's mystery to all of this. And, yeah. you know, I think so much of American mindset, because we kind of come from more of the Greek mindset, we don't like mystery. We have a problem mm-hmm. with that inherently. So mm-hmm. um, the idea that there might be a choice made by God, not because of our worthiness, but because God um, has this inscrutable, mysterious will just baffles us, and that it is for his own good pleasure. And yeah, it, that's hard for us to swallow, but there's so much of the scriptures that we we actually just have to bow and say, okay, your will be done in this. I don't, yeah. I don't have to fully understand it, although I'm very grateful uh, that he has revealed so much of this to us um, through, mm-hmm. through the scriptures. And, you know, but we don't have to understand all his ways. Yeah, yeah. And I think there, there is going to be, there's going to be mystery at the end of whatever theology you have. Yeah. You just have to let it come in at the right place. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes yeah, people will, point. people will insert that when you get too deep into this and they'll cut you off from going as far as the Bible goes. Yeah. Uh, or they get to where we've gotten tonight and they say, ah, I affirm the unconditional nature of election. The mystery mm-hmm. is the, un- the, the hidden will of God in yeah. choosing in the reason he chose things the way he did. He had, good reasons he had good will he had yep. his good will and purpose behind it mm-hmm. um but his will is not revealed and we know the reason we know the, the reasons that he did not choose us we know we know what the reasons aren't that he chose us that's my yeah. way to put it it's um, not my worth it's not my worth in the sense that i could be worthy enough mm-hmm. in in one way he has deemed me of worth but not that i am worthy my worth um, the way i put this was this is actually a back and forth I had with Derek at one point. I overstated my case 
but I was responding to something. I think I had a valid point, but I didn't state it right. In that he was saying we have, he was making, I think, a false differentiation between worth and value. Okay. Um, and he says, That's well, a we, good point. Value said, is a better word. <laughs> but but, but that, that was actually what I was disagreeing with in okay. that they do mean the same thing, but there, it's, a, it's a, in that we have value and we have worth, but there's also a sense in which we have no value and no worth. Okay. Uh, because they mean the same thing. So the, the differentiation, like what I did wrong was I, I didn't differentiate that. I said, okay. those mean the same things. So stop, stop making a false distinction. Um, okay. But my point was our worth and value are not of a sort that moved God to save us. Yes. Right. God, right. God moved himself. Otherwise you cannot believe in unconditional election. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what we have is, worth in the sense that we have human worth and that we're not inanimate objects. God didn't go right. out to save trees and, in his tre- image. trees and rocks. We have yeah. incalculable v- value in that sense, but that's not, the, but we didn't have value that made God compelled to save us. We right. don't have legal value or legal okay. worth before yeah, God. That's a good way is to put the it. way that I thought about it. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing meritorious we can do to, stake a claim on this you know we can't we can't earn it you know that's that's the simplest the simplicity of the gospel there's nothing we could do to ever earn it or work for it or strive for it right um and so the idea is we have to find um rest even as believers once we're believers we still have to find our rest in christ because so many believers still once they're in the door so to speak continue to strive to find their value um or prove their value prove their merit Mm-hmm. You know, proof that God's decision was right, and so we still have to just rest in grace. Right, right. I had I had like one more point, but then I also see Ash has a really good question. We probably should tackle. Yeah, um, yeah, I saw that as well. Yeah. Um, what was my point? Ah, it'll come back to me hopefully. Uh, oh yeah, I remember what my point was, and it might relate to what she's saying. But um, I was uh, oftentimes the Arminian or the more intuitive believer who doesn't know these categories per se um they'll they'll think that believing in election like is interesting the arminian traditionally believes in conditional election and the calvinist believes in unconditional election but they both believe in election right but people who haven't heard the terminology tend to say well i don't believe in election or choosing because that makes somebody elite and we shouldn't have Mm -hmm. elitism but actually the conditional election is what causes elitism because ultimately we're somehow meriting the favor of God either by our faith or by our or by our works. They tend not to say works, they'll say faith. Um, but ultimately we were the difference makers that caused election. And if we're the difference makers, then what why isn't that elitism? The point in Calvinism is there's no reason for being elite. Um yeah. and so I would say if properly understood, Calvinism should be something that creates humility. Um, yeah. But Ash has a good question if you want to tackle that. Uh, yeah, so the question is, I had someone tell me Calvinists don't share the gospel because we know who the elect are. How would you respond to this? I I have actually never run into a situation, though I'm sure you could probably find somebody out there who maybe feels that way. I've never run into a situation where somebody who understands these doctrines actually doesn't share the gospel right. or care to share the gospel. Um, maybe we don't always do it well, 
maybe, you know, obviously we can always do more of that, but, um, I think all Christians on both sides of this struggle to share the gospel enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, historically it's inaccurate in a number of ways. I, the, the biggest early I mean, missionary movements were Calvinistic. It's just that Calvinist, the yeah. predominant culture in America now is more Arminian or, yeah. uh, and so most missionaries are going to be Arminian. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, Paul is given a vision um, you know, to go to Macedonia and to preach the gospel, and he does, and people are saved. At another point, he's told, I have many in this city. Um, can't remember which city that was, but he goes into that city, preaches the gospel, and people get saved. Go figure. Um, the predestination, so, predestination was an engine for him. Yeah, uh, it, it's a motivator, because what you begin to see is the power is not in me. The power's in the gospel. And so... If I fully believe that, that God is sovereign over salvation, man, it's the pressure is off of me to catch people hook, line, and sinker. I always uh, use the phrase seal the deal. Um, the pressure is off of me to seal the deal because ultimately I know I can't, but God can and will and does. And uh, so, man, I'm trusting him. I'm trusting him to save people because that's what he does. Yeah, I should, I should, I guess, say two things in that. Um, one thing I've heard is that often when people say something like that, they're not responding to what they've seen. They're not responding to your beliefs. They're responding mm -hmm. to what they, in their understanding, think they would do if they believed what you believe. In other okay. words, yeah. I see what you're saying. Like I, I saw this happen in my previous school I went to where someone basically said, well, the only issue I have with the reformed tradition is they don't evangelize a lot. And I realized, no, what they had heard and what had been said was, I don't see the, I don't see the motivation for evangelism. If this is true, therefore they must not have a motivation. Yeah. Um, and so there's that aspect, but there is, and, and I'd say that's simply not true. There are, it can, if rightly understood, it can be a motivation. These, the, these doctrines rather than the opposite. Um, but there is should be an acknowledgement of what historically is called hyper-Calvinism. This is what hyper-Calvinism is, um, historically. It's not just that you have, like, you're too deterministic or you're too serious about these things. Tech, it has a technical definition. Uh, came from, I think, who was the missionary at the time? Was it William Carey? I don't remember. It was, like, in, in England. But they had reached a point in some of the churches there where they were what I like to say, they, they were finishing God's sentence in this way. Mm. Oh, God is sovereign. Therefore we don't have to go. And they were literally saying that at one phase. Yeah. And okay. uh, whoever I'm talking about, I think it was William Carey. I might be wrong, but he was going, we need to go and and reach these unreached nations. And they're like, if God wants to, you know, talk to them, then he'll, he'll figure something out. <laughs> you don't have to do anything, <laughs> but he's like, no. And then he, I guess in response, wrote a book, Piper recommended I never read it, uh, but it was called Gospel Worthy of All Acceptance, I think it was called. But it basically talks about, I guess, the consistency between Calvinism and missionary missions fervor. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but there is, there have been historically, quote unquote, hyper-Calvinists. That's what hyper-Calvinism is. is a, it's not, uh, it's not an error in the doctrine, it's an error in the application. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so 
She uh, another question before we go. She asked if we had seen Ligonier's uh, oh. survey of theology, state of theology. I have I've not. seen um, I've seen bits and pieces posted. Um, obviously, the the shocker parts of it are disheartening, but in in some ways, to me, not totally shocking. Um, mm-hmm. I'll have to actually dig through it and and read through it like. You have to remind me what it, of it. You have to remind me exactly what that is. They, I know they've done like it's like a survey of what the current Christian beliefs are around America. Yeah, or... you know, so like how many percentage of evangelical Christians affirm gay marriage and mm-hmm. um, transgender issues? It, it it crosses a gamut of issues. Yeah. Um, do you believe the inerrancy of Scripture? Yeah, you know, I remember one that was topics. like about Trinitarianism, and it was like ridiculous. Nobody yeah. understood the Trinity, or you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like. I think in general, obviously the numbers um, appear to be going the wrong direction. I would chalk that mostly up to churches not preaching truth, not preaching through the scriptures and the gospel, and um, that that is disheartening. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Surveys are surveys. Sometimes they get the full picture. Sometimes they don't. So yeah. yeah. All right. So any. Any final thoughts as we wind down here? No, I think we we covered that. Yeah, I felt pretty good about it. Yeah. All right. So thank you again, Ash, for hanging out. Thank you, Dragon Fist. You were here for a bit. I don't know if you're still here. Um, but uh, And hello to any future viewers. If you're watching or listening to the full episode, um, great. Otherwise, we'll see you guys later in when I break this up. Um, but yeah. So uh, thank you, Caleb. Thank you all. It's been fun, and we'll see you around hopefully next week if all goes according to plan. So see you, everybody. Yeah.